E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Pernton, and I'm the Associate Director of the University of Delaware's Partnership for Public Education. On today's episode of the E4E podcast, we are joined by Dr. Lindsay Gibbons, an Assistant Professor at the University of Delaware's School of Education. Lindsay's work centers around providing teachers with rich learning opportunities designed to help teachers better respond to their students. She focuses on teacher learning practices and the organizational facilitation of these practices, particularly in mathematics education. Lindsay teaches mathematics content and methods courses for prospective elementary school teachers and leads mathematics teaching and teacher education seminars at the doctoral level. Also joining us today is Dr. Sam Pro, a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics education. Their work centers on understanding the varied contexts of students' mathematical learning. Sam is particularly interested in considering the role of parents in making meaningful out-of-school connections to mathematics and how those connections can be leveraged in classroom learning. Currently, Sam works on a project with Lindsay designed to support the professional learning of a group of Delaware area teachers on discussion in the mathematics classroom. Lindsay and Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks Thanks for having us. So my first question is for Lindsay. Lindsay, could you explain to us what are math learning labs? So math learning labs, they're a professional learning structure that I had a chance to learn about from Dr. Elham Kazemi at the University of Washington. And they're a structure that really allow teachers to learn both from practice and in practice collectively. There's really four parts to it. The first is that teachers have a chance to dig into some research around children's mathematical thinking, look at video together or read a case study together about a particular math lesson or an instructional activity in math. Once they've had a chance to do that, the second part of the day, the facilitator picks something to really dig into with children and something that the teachers have been curious about, or maybe there's a new instructional activity structure that they want to experience together. And so the teachers have an opportunity to really co-plan once they pick an instructional activity, pick some quantities in math, co-plan a lesson, a small lesson together. And then this is, I think, the really cool part and the part that teachers that have experienced it and school leaders really like is they then go into a classroom and they bring that lesson to life. And they use a professional learning routine, which we're going to talk about more, called teacher timeout. And teacher timeout allows them to pause as they're enacting this lesson that they've co-planned for multiple teachers to have input around what to do next in response to kids' thinking. They come out of the classroom often quite excited by what they saw kids do or some predictions that they made. They have a chance to revise it. And then something elementary teachers rarely get to do is to go into another classroom and teach it again. So they take those revisions, they enact it again. Often it's a different teacher than that taught it the first time. But again, they use the teacher timeout routine to make pauses, 
make decisions collectively. Fourth part is really reflecting on those enactments. And we have conversations about, again, what we thought kids might do. We talk a lot about who participated. Often we're we're facilitating a whole class discussion, who participated in that discussion, whose voice was being privileged, who didn't participate verbally, but maybe participated in different ways. And then teachers really set commitments for what they want to try out in their classroom in the coming weeks. It could be an instructional activity. It could be using more of turn-in talks, having like pair talk, having kids talk. It could be trying out a particular way of talking about a mathematical idea with children. So there's lots of different commitments that they end up making. But that's the full day. And again, I think the really exciting part for teachers is getting to see other teachers teach, sit with their own students, hear their own students' mathematical thinking, and get images of what other teaching looks like from their colleagues. That sounds amazing. So Sam, my next question is actually for you. What are the benefits of rich mathematical discussions and other skills developed in those math learning labs in terms of learning opportunities for students learning math in Delaware schools? I want to start by saying that we see benefits for students and also benefits for teachers. I'm going to touch briefly on teachers that alludes to some of the things that Lindsay was talking about. Particularly in discussions, we see that teachers have better access to students' math ideas because they're seeing and hearing how students are thinking about things. And in other contexts of learning, you don't always get that. You can't see inside a kid's brain to understand how they're interpreting an idea. It's not always enough to get a feel for what's making sense to them that's helpful for these rich kinds of discussions. But there are also a lot of things that are helpful for students in these spaces. One of them is seeing talk as thinking. Being able to talk through your ideas as a student gives it a space to develop your thinking with your peers. And you're not just in competition with your peers thinking, oh, who can answer this question faster? You are learning from and with your peers. As they share ideas, students can build off of them and refine their own thinking that is similar or different. That's really helpful. We also see it as a space with that in mind to really deepen their understanding of particular math content. We also think that this helps students develop practices for how they're engaging with their classroom community, what it looks like to engage in different kinds of skills, such as communication, being able to share ideas in a way that others can understand, to develop their critical thinking instead of just, here's my answer, I hope that it's right, let's see if the teacher is confirming, digging into things like, does my answer make sense? Is it something that would apply in other circumstances? Can I convince my classmates that this is a good idea? And also being curious about questions that come up in a group instead of trying to get through a series of problems that you're solving on a worksheet that adds a different layer of interest and then engagement for children. Another piece that feels beneficial for students and also teachers is that when you have these rich mathematical discussions, you have a space to engage in equity and really position students as valuable contributors to a discussion where they have valuable ideas that help move others forward, which can help them see themselves as better math thinkers and more like mathematicians that have valuable things to contribute. Lindsay touched on it briefly with describing what happens in learning labs to also talk about them. What are the benefits of these rich mathematical discussions in a lab space? 
And we see this as really being specific to the context of the teachers that we're working with. There's a general structure to learning labs, but that's not to say it's a cookie cutter PD program that you come in and you have to do the same thing. There really are a space for the teachers that you're working with to get a chance to experiment with a particular goal or problem of practice that they have in their classroom or classrooms that they then can work collaboratively with and try things out. And in some spaces, that might be trying things that aren't part of their curriculum or they don't have experience in. Instead of just saying, go do it, you have that space and community with you to try that, that then in turn benefits the students when the teachers have a chance to try it and then inspect how it went. Sam, I'm particularly interested in the comment you made about these classroom discussions being places to enact equity. So how can teachers enact discussions to foster student learning and collaboration with equity in mind? It's a great question. We think one of the greatest places to start is developing norms in a classroom of valuing ideas. Sometimes that can be really hard to make that shift in math class, where a lot of times the goal is to get an answer on a standardized test that's multiple choice. You've got to hit one little bubble there and thinking about how you can shift what happens in the classroom that values what people are thinking in the moment is a good starting place. And discussions are helpful for that as thinking of as we get to the final answer that we're looking for, it's more what's the journey to get there? What pieces do we understand do we not that we pick up from others and seeing those as all valuable contributions? So this norm of valuing ideas is really the starting place. And then for supporting teachers and what that looks like and saying, if that's where we start from, what we then use to get closer to that is paying attention. Like, okay, if that's where we work from, how are we paying attention to who is participating and what ways they're participating? What am I doing in my facilitation that is helping students feel like they have a place in the classroom or perhaps hindering their place in the classroom? That once you notice it, you have the possibility to make change. So how can teachers ensure that there is diverse participation among students and that all student voices are making it into this conversation? I want to say first that this is really complicated. So there are certainly things that we can consider with this, but it's not, here's the final perfect answer that will work for everyone. And I think in that regard, we're really lucky that we get to work alongside teachers in this context of learning labs, because we're trying to figure that out together. Actually, this brings up a nice point, too, of a learning lab we just had last week with a group that was considering their participation. They had just been in a classroom, and one of the teachers remarked that she was actually disappointed because not as many students offered to speak in this enactment where we were trying a number talk as what usually do when there aren't a whole bunch of adults in the room for a learning lab and worried about what that meant for participation and how students feel included. But then in the reflection, the conversation talks about, well, what does it mean when a student shares and what kinds of ideas? Do we just want to get students saying something? And in this case, they realized that when they looked back at the students that were talking and how they were talking, it instead of attending to quantity, that a whole bunch of students all talked and said something, that it's also helpful to think about the quality of participation. In this case, the students who contributed were thinking about each other's ideas and contributing things on the topic and having explanations for their work that actually made how they were looking at the picture a little bit different for thinking of that participation. This is fascinating. So Lindsay, in your recent work, you analyzed the professional learning routine known as teacher timeout, which you talked about briefly. How does teacher timeout work to establish collaboration amongst teachers? It's when 
two or more adults are in a classroom and they pause to really confer together as teaching is unfolding. And in the context of the math labs or the science or literacy labs, we have a formal actual T that you can make with your hand, a formal signal of a T that you can make with your hand to indicate that you would like to take a time out. Or if you're the one that's kind of up front leading the teaching, you could just say verbally, I want to take a teacher time out. And we tell the students about this ahead of time. So they're not surprised by it. They know what we mean when we say we're going to take a teacher time out. And what teacher timeout allows for is for educators to really collectively engage with the unpredictability of leading a classroom discussion. And so a lot of times when you're leading a discussion, you really want to elicit kids thinking, and then you have to think on your feet. What am I going to do now to respond to that child? Am I going to represent their idea on the whiteboard so everybody can see it? Am I going to ask somebody else to repeat what that child said? Am I going to ask them a question that really presses their thinking or their, or to clarify something about it? Am I going to ask the whole class, does anybody have any questions for this child? There's lots of different ways a discussion can go. And the teacher is always trying to make these decisions in the moment. So teacher timeout really slows down that decision-making process and makes it public such that other teachers can also collectively engage in the decision-making around teaching. So what I'd like to do is give you an example of a teacher timeout that has taken place in the context of our work with teachers. The fifth grade teachers had a slightly new math standard that they were trying to understand, and that is interpret a fraction as the division of the numerator by the denominator. So when A over B equals A divided by B. And they realized that over the last few years, they've been doing a lot of really interesting work with fractions, but they've never asked children to write an equation to represent the way that they solved a mathematical problem, particularly an equal sharing problem. So they posed how much of a chocolate bar does one person get if four people share three chocolate bars equally? And they anticipated that a lot of kids, because they've seen a lot of drawings over the years of what kids will do. So they anticipated that kids would draw three chocolate bars. Some kids are going to cut each bar into four pieces and give one piece away at a time. There were two teachers leading. One was a university teacher educator like Sam and me, and the other was a fifth grade teacher. And they posed this question of the kids, had a chance on a whiteboard to solve the problem and then write an equation that matches how they solve the problem. And the university teacher said to the teachers, who should we call on first? Because the teachers are all situated in the classroom, sitting among children. And so one teacher raises her hand and says, you should call on Mateo. And so the university teacher educator said, great, Mateo, what equation did you write to match how you thought about the problem? And Mateo said, I wrote three divided by four equals three fourths. And so in that moment, the lead teacher thought, oh, this is actually the standard. This is what, you know, what we want kids to be able to understand about fractions but this is not what we anticipated kids would do. We thought kids would use addition. And so now what should I do? Should I 
go back to Matteo and say, like, for example, what is the three? What is the four? Should I elicit more answers? And, you know, and just really balancing what is this going to communicate to kids what my next move is? And so this is pretty complicated, right? So she calls a teacher timeout and says, teacher timeout, what do you think we should do next? Do we? And so people are kind of shouting some things out. Let's ask them what's the three, what's the four, you know, different things. But then the principal goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. I notice that a lot of kids are erasing because they think maybe that's the only equation. And the lead teacher had no idea that that was going on and said, oh, are people erasing? Oh, no. Okay, we've got to pull out more equations because there are other equations that can match how to solve this problem. And so because the principal who at this school always participates alongside teachers in the learning labs, because she was situated sitting among kids, she had that vantage point to see that kids were interpreting, oh, there is only one right equation. So that drove the decision to not go back to Matteo yet. They went back to him later, but to in the moment, you know, elicit more problems. So I'm giving that illustration to really highlight the complexity of teaching and the the utility of having this professional learning routine. So Lindsay, this is really interesting. And as somebody who has both coaching and teaching experience, I just think I can't imagine how valuable this experience is. So what are the implications of teacher timeout for teacher discussions and learning? In one of the studies that I conducted about teacher timeout with Dr. Ada Oaken, Boston University, we found out that over time, the contents of the teacher timeouts shifted. We had a lot of classroom videos over the context of three years at one elementary school. We ended up with 360 teacher timeouts that we analyzed. And one of the things that we were really curious was, did the teacher timeouts, did the nature of them, the content of them, who called them, what happened afterwards, did that change over time or did it stay pretty consistent? And so what we found was that the content indeed did shift over time. At first, there was a lot of focus on kind of managing the logistic of an instructional activity, but then... Over time, less timeouts were used to really manage the instructional activity. More timeouts were used to discuss the mathematics. Like, how do I represent that student's idea? Or what's a good question to ask now? Or should we shift and do this other thing? So a lot of it more related to the mathematical ideas and getting support from each other around the mathematical ideas. Other research that we've done has shown that the teacher timeout professional learning routine really provides opportunities for teachers to communicate their reasons for professional decisions to others, both in real time as instruction unfolded, but also especially in extended reflections after the classroom visits. So often, for example, if Sam took a timeout, they might say afterwards, you know, here's why I took this timeout. I was really working hard to try to understand that student's thinking, and I didn't quite know what to do next. And I thought we should represent it in this way, but I wasn't sure. So there's more opportunity when the timeout is taken during the enactment to continue to unpack that pedagogical reasoning and that professional judgment afterwards in the reflection. 
In other analyses, we've also shown that teacher timeouts really support the improvisational teaching, you know, that requires that really that in the moment response around, okay, I just got this response from a child. What do I do next? I could go five, six different ways. And how do I make a principal judgment about which way to, to then select? And then they provide teachers with conceptual resources. They give teachers images of what's possible, but also give them language to then when they're back in their own classrooms with their students, really have an opportunity to talk with them about math in new ways or think critically about who they're calling on and why they're calling on a particular student. And just, I wanna share a quote that I love from one of the fifth grade teachers. She said, when I'm back in my classroom, I give myself permission to take a teacher timeout and I ask, what would Miss Simpson do here? Or what would Miss Kay do here? And so she's really giving herself permission when she's back alone teaching in her classroom to take a timeout and think through how would some of the teachers that I work with respond in this moment? And so those kind of conceptual resources to provide her with possibilities and different ways of moving forward. So when people hear about teacher timeout, they're really curious about what's going on with the kids, right? Because they hear that teachers pause the instruction and they're having conversations. So in the study, what we found in analyzing 360 timeouts is that most timeouts lasted about nine to 15 seconds. Some were shorter, some were longer, but the students, particularly in these studies, got really used to the routine because it was being used across their school, K to five. And the older students are really curious about what the teachers are trying to figure out. The teachers talk a lot about how the teacher timeout positions them as learners and positions them as folks who make mistakes and can ask for help. And so they actually love their students to see the teacher timeout routine and to see them engaging in that routine because they're trying to create classroom environments where children can ask their peers for help or children can say, I don't know what to do next. I'm not quite sure I understand. And that they feel like this routine helps to cultivate that. It makes a lot of sense. So how can math coaches foster both collective and ongoing learning like this for educators? So math coaches play a critical role in schools and schools and districts that really value teachers' ongoing learning and ongoing development find ways to fund coaching and and ways to support the roles of coaches. A lot of my work with coaches has been to think about reorganizing their work such that they are working with groups of teachers. And I work mostly at elementary schools, so working with groups of same grade level teachers. So we think together, and often we will use the math learning lab context as a structure to support teachers, but we think together about what it looks like to facilitate teachers to learn with and from one another. So what does it look like to organize like a weekly PLC or teacher work group meeting such that they're facilitating teachers to turn toward each other, share problems of practice, really think together about solutions, what they might want to try out as a grade level team. 
places where coaching has been really powerful, there's been a shared vision of instruction. And so when coaches are working alongside groups of teachers, they have images of the types of practices they want to work alongside teachers to develop. They often have professional language to talk about those practices. And part of the work that they're doing is to really foster and develop and create these teacher communities. So, Lindsay, I'm really interested in how coaches can support communities of teachers in implementing these math learning labs with a coach and, and, you know, with their principal present in the classroom. What does a coach have to do to support that community? Coaches have talked about math labs as giving them a structure and an opportunity to work with whole grade level teams as opposed to just working one-on-one with teachers. And when they have a chance to work with whole grade level teams, they can take teachers' current practices and their observations of teachers' current practices and make some decisions around what might be the next useful thing for teachers to work on together. And they can also take teachers' input about things teachers are curious about and wanting to work on with their grade-level colleagues. But it gives us space, really, for teachers to start to develop a common instructional vision to really think together about, well, what kinds of opportunities do we want for kids to experience in our classrooms? What kinds of practices can we be developing to support them for that? And so it gives us space to help develop a shared vision for what we want to change our instruction or deepen our instruction to look like. And so it's not just a teacher going in their classroom, closing the door. I'm responsible for these 23 third graders sitting in front of me. It's really, okay, my class is a part of the third grade team. And all of the third graders across the third grade team are my responsibility. I have a professional obligation to sit alongside my other third grade colleagues and talk about my teaching and hear about their teaching and co-problem solve together and really think together about what we could be trying out. One of the principles that I worked with called it an equity issue. If a student gets placed in Sam's third grade class or my third grade class or Anastasia, your third grade class, they should have very similar learning opportunities, no matter which classroom they get placed in. And so in order for that to happen, we have to be working together closely to develop these instructional practices, to create a common vision for the types of classroom environments we want to have, for the types of mathematical discussions and interactions we want children in our classrooms to have. So these learning lab spaces give coaches opportunities within this structure to develop professional communities, to develop these strong orientations towards teaching and learning, and, and also these professional identities that our job is to help each other get better at teaching. So the coach has a lot of work to do framing what the lab structure is, and it's really a space to try things out, to experiment with practice. The coach does a lot of work to really make teachers feel comfortable teaching in front of one another. Often what coaches can do is they can volunteer to be one of the lead teachers and ask another teacher to partner alongside them so that the the coach is, is showing vulnerability and the coach is saying, I'll be the one that tackles this first time. The other thing that the coach can do is to call it a teacher timeout early in that classroom visit enactment. And that really welcomes people. Like, like, I'm going to call it timeout and I'm going to ask you, what should I do next? I'm not sure what to do next. 
And I don't mean it in a disingenuous way. I mean, for the coach to find a spot, okay, there's one, two, three ways I could go here. Let me invite other people to think alongside me about what to do next. That's amazing. I think this is just really tremendous. And I, I just love it. In schools where learning labs have been really productive, often the principal is blocking their schedule out for the whole day to be able to sit alongside teachers. And that's a big ask for principals. But those principals see their role as really affecting classroom interactions, teaching and learning opportunities. And it feels vital for them to be sitting right alongside their teachers and learning. They aim to create environments where teachers feel safe to try out new practices. One principal I worked with had a motto, you can't get better and look good at the same time. And that was her way of saying to teachers, I want you to experiment. I want you to fail spectacularly. I want you to learn from that. Another principal that I worked with in East Boston When I interviewed all of his teachers, it was clear that he expected them to experiment and try things out and learn from from that experimentation. So I, I think part of what I'm responding to your answer with is there's a huge role for the principal to create a space to understand that part of their role is to get better at teaching and to get better at teaching is to get up and try things. And to get better at teaching means making your teaching public so others can think with you, give you feedback, jump in and, you know, co-problem solve in the moment with you. And so coaches have a lot of work to really frame that aspect of teacher's professional work. We're going to continue to learn and we're going to continue to get better. And one of the ways that we're going to do it is we're going to plan together. We're going to go teach together. We're going to help each other out and support each other in the moment. We're going to come out and talk about how it went. And so I think in our current work, we're thinking a lot about what does it look like to set up these norms of experimentation for it to be acceptable? Because that sometimes is dirty word in schools. We don't want teachers experimenting. We don't want them trying things out, right? We want them to implement these curriculum materials with fidelity. But, you know, we really believe that innovation on practice, and like Sam said earlier, us really trying to figure out what does a high quality classroom discussion look like? So Sam, what happens when educators across a school have time to work closely together in ways that you and Lindsay just described? We see it that when schools are reshaped as these learning organizations, They're really transformed to be learning environments that are collaborative, identity-affirming, and meaningful places for both adult and student learning. As Lindsay said earlier, it really helps create teacher communities where teachers feel like they're part of a bigger effort to support students. And in this way, teachers and school leaders work together to accommodate students' ways of thinking and understanding and the diverse ways that students think and understand concepts. This is also not just during math lessons, but across all aspects of students in school learning. We see that when teachers work towards similar practices, they're learning with and from one another. And it has a big impact on students as they move across grade levels, as they work with teachers who are doing the same kinds of things in first grade to teachers in second grade who are doing things that 
then puts student in a good place of building on what they've done before in terms of connecting with their knowledge instead of starting each year over with new norms and expectations for how to engage. And in our experience with Delaware area teachers, when teachers are treated as sense makers in the space where they're working closely together, they feel like they're both seen and heard and that their contributions to thinking about their practice and changing it are going to be respected. I'm thinking back to when I was a pre-service educator, being terrified of having to deliver a lesson and feeling like it had to be perfect. And I just feel like this could be so valuable to be in a space where I'm positioned as a learner as well. I think it's really fascinating that you bring up how this might also be a practice that's useful for pre-service teachers on two friends. One is sometimes we're really fortunate that the classroom teachers have a student teacher or a practicum student with them and that they have space to join us in the lab and that they then contribute, that they offer to be part of the classroom visit and thinking about it, or they do a teacher timeout to ask questions about why things are happening. That feels really fruitful to get their perspective and also invite them to as a fellow learner, a fellow teacher in that process. There are also pieces of it too that feel similar to some work that's done with Dr. Halu Kuseni with rehearsals with pre-service teachers. Uh, Not quite the same in terms of not necessarily in a classroom with students, but trying out lessons and Often in that case, using the teacher timeout routine as a way to ask questions of peers of particular decisions that we're making in the moment and getting that opportunity to try that and think aloud with other teachers. So it's interesting that you asked that because this work really stems from research that was done in pre-service education on university campuses with novice teachers. So this work really builds on learning in and from and for teaching project. So we feel pretty strongly that it's it's a really interesting cycle and a, a really important way for novice teachers to learn how to teach mathematics to children. So I would like to thank you both for having joined us today and for being on the E4E podcast. I'm really looking forward to being able to share this and share your work with others. If folks are interested, is there a good place to reach either of you? Well, we're both on Twitter. Yeah, we will post your Twitter handles in our in the description of the podcast. And we'll also have some links to your work as well. We're just really excited to be working alongside partnering elementary schools in the Delaware area to engage in this work. We're learning a lot as we think about classroom discussions in math and in ELA and in science. And we're thrilled that the teachers amidst a very chaotic time still are willing to welcome us into their schools, into their classrooms, and really learn alongside them. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu slash ppe.